you for this time of year when we celebrate not only the birth of our Savior, but are reminded again that he has come to be our victor, that he has come to conquer sin and Satan and to lead his people into victory of the new heavens and the new earth. We pray that you'll remind our hearts today of the big picture and the hope that we have in Christ. Lift each discouraged heart and may we see the joy of the gospel today. We pray in his name. Amen. Would you open God's word with me, please, to Revelation chapter 12, page 1034 in the church Bible. Revelation 12. This year in Advent, we've been looking at the birth of a baby promised in Genesis. We looked at last week. And today, the scripture closes with the birth of a baby. Revelation 12 is the middle of this book. It's the middle of the book in many different ways, not only in writing and form, but theologically, because here's the the theme of the book. The Holy Spirit, through John, is is pulling aside the curtain, and he's showing us, here's here's what's happening behind the scenes that you don't see. The first 11 chapters of Revelation have been the church is being persecuted. Where is all this hatred coming against Christ and his church? Why is the opposition Well, it's pulling aside the curtain and showing us Satan has a fury, a hatred to destroy Christ's church. That's what's happening behind the scenes. And Revelation 12 is showing us this warfare. It's showing us Satan's fury, and it's also showing us Christ's decisive victory. Revelation 12, this is God's word. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for a thousand two hundred and sixty days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. 
The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Verses 1 through 4, first of all, give us this diabolical fury of the conflict. And then verses 5 through 12, the decisive victory that we have in Christ. This diabolical fury. It's symbolized in these two characters, a pregnant woman and this red dragon. Consider first the the woman's dangerous position and then this devil's dark plan. The woman's dangerous position, verses 1 and 2 again. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Who's the woman? The woman is represented in the Old Testament scriptures as Mother Israel, as the church through whom Christ would be born. And so she's wearing 12 stars and a crown representing the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Old Testament Israel. And it's an image that's throughout the Old Testament, Israel as a bride in covenant marriage, Hosea 2. Old Testament Israel as the mother of God's people, even, even the images of giving birth, Isaiah 66 and Jeremiah 4. Certainly the metaphor of the bride, the church as a bride, has continued into the New Testament, Ephesians 5. And the church is called the mother of believers, Galatians 4.26. Jerusalem above is free. She's our mother, Galatians 4.26. The woman's identity, it's the church from the Old Testament through whom Messiah would be born. As the early church father Cyprian put it, you cannot have God as your father if you do not have the church as your mother, the church. The woman's glory, verse 1, you wouldn't describe her as glorious, would you? It says she's wearing the light of the sun. She bears truth to God's truth and shines. But to call the church glorious? Even at the time of the birth of Christ, you would hardly say it's a glorious church. It was a weak remnant. Israel was under the occupation of Rome, and the nation was full of unbelief. Even when John wrote the epistle to the Revelation, writing this book, he writes the messages to the seven churches, and they're dealing with sin and persecution and unbelief. Even today, the church appears weak. We see each other's warts and dirty laundry and churches frail, churches persecuted. With a mournful wonder, men see her sore, oppressed by schisms, rent asunder, heresies distressed. Glorious? Well, she's glorious the way God views his church. Because when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are given then the righteousness of Christ and we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the way we stand before God. We stand before him. He views us as glorious because we stand before him in Christ. The woman's glory, but there's also the woman's peril. She's in great danger. This very powerful imagery is a pregnant woman. She's about to give birth to a 
her male child, the one to come from the Old Testament church, the promised Messiah that was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Here's the seed of Eve, the seed of the covenant of Abraham. Here's the promised son of David, David's greater son. This is to be the Messiah. To fulfill Micah 5 and verse 3, you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And he will be born and will shepherd his flock. But the chill, the danger is, here's a pregnant woman in labor, about to give birth, and she looks up to where her midwife would be standing. There's not a midwife. There's this red dragon ready to kill her child and ready to kill her. The woman is in a very dangerous position. What's the devil's dark plan? Look at verses 3 and 4 again. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. We know the dragon is Satan. You see that in verse 9. Clear reference to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. Satan has come to tempt Adam and Eve. His appearance is described as frightful. It's described, first of all, with great intellect. Not just one head, seven heads. Seven and ten were often numbers of fullness and completion. He's a great intellect, great knowledge. And ten horns, seven crowns. He rules the princes of this world and their unbelief. Great power, tremendous authority. Chapter 9, he's been given the keys to the abyss, and out of the abyss come his demons to accomplish his his purposes. His his tail, verse 4, swept aside a third of the stars. He's already been referred to a star himself. He controls the powers and all those forces against the church of Jesus Christ. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6. His appearance is frightful. And his vileness is evil. There's nothing good in him. He intends to destroy this pregnant woman. He intends to destroy her, her son. You never joke about Satan. You never, even the archangel Michael would not ridicule him. Jude, verse 9. Reminds you of Tolkien's trilogy, Gollum. It was that evil character. Quote, you can't sleep around him or he will stab you. Satan's intent is to murder the Christ child. So he stands where the midwife would stand. Because he knows if this child is to be born, he's to be the Messiah. He's the one that's been given the promise of a decisive victory over Satan. Satan's been told that. You wouldn't divulge your battle plans to the enemy, but God did. God told Satan, this is what's going to happen. The Messiah is to come, Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve were promised that one to come from the line of Eve, 
will come and will crush the head of Satan. It will be a decisive victory, even though Satan attempts to bite his heel. And Satan, through all of Old Testament church history, has been trying to defeat that prophecy. His intent is to destroy Messiah, to destroy God's people, so there would be no line of salvation, there would be no redemption. You can follow the theme all the way through, even in the very first generation. Cain kills Abel, from whom would have been the line of the Messiah. Athaliah's attempt to kill all the king's son, so there would be no son of David. But only one escapes. Josiah lives to complete the line. Or Haman looked like he was going to have success to have the emperor annihilate the whole Jewish race. But God had already placed Esther as queen. And through the intervention of one, the Old Testament church was preserved. We read Matthew 2, Herod's anger after the wise men did not return. And incited by Satan, he must kill all the babies to be sure because he must annihilate this Messiah. And finally, at the end of Christ's ministry, Satan enters Judas himself as Judas betrays Christ so that Satan might, in his efforts, have Christ killed. But he only plays to God's hand. Satan is behind all these attempts in history. He must annihilate the Old Testament church. He must kill the woman and her son. Because otherwise, the son would become the savior. The son would become the redeemer. And the son would crush his head. That's the fury that you're reading in Revelation 12. But we're also shown the decisive victory in this conflict, verses 5 through 12. Satan has lost the battle in so many ways. He's lost the battle against Christ. You see it in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child. One is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The baby's born safe. Where's the baby now? In heaven. Where did Satan not want this baby to end up? Ruling all things. Where is the baby? Ruling all things. Revelation 12 only gives the two endpoints of his whole earthly ministry, his birth and his ascension. Everything else is included in that. All of the miracles, going to the cross, his death, resurrection, ascension. Just the two endpoints. Because he has come and he has returned. That was the reason he came. That's the reason he was born on Christmas. For his ascension, to rule and to conquer all things. He's now on the throne as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The battle was won at the cross. And Christ crushed the head of Satan. First John 3.18, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This male child has been born, has gone to the cross and paid for our redemption, has risen and has ascended as the victor. Jesus said at his ascension, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Why could he say that? 
because he's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. Satan's head has been crushed. His back has been broken. And he now cannot hold the nations in deception. And now as we go forth with the gospel, all those appointed to eternal life will believe and they will come to Christ. It's been a decisive victory. Satan has lost his battle. Satan has been hurled down, secondly, verses 7 through 9. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Thrown down, nothing wrong with the translation. I like the translation, hurled. He was hurled down. What do you hurl? Hurl has more of a sense of urgency and speed than just thrown. You hurl a baseball. You hurl a kitchen towel that has caught fire, and you hurl it into the sink and pour water on it. If you have a bee inside of your hat, you hurl that hat away. You get rid of it. You hurl with intensity. Satan, when he was defeated because of the work of Jesus Christ, he was not invited to leave heaven. He was hurled out of heaven. Jesus Christ going to the cross, John 12, 31 says, Now is the time of judgment for this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. It's the same form of the word as Revelation 12, hurled out. John Milton's line in Paradise Lost, the line where Satan's reflecting back from hell on what's just happened to him, Remembering how he lost the war in heaven, writes, Till then, who knew the force of those dire arms? He's in shock. A comment on the archangel Michael representing leading God's armies. He wins because Christ is one. You might think of Michael as the staff officer And he's able to remove Satan's flag from the heavenly map because Michael's chief officer in the field, Jesus Christ, has won the battle. Satan's lost his battle. Satan has been hurled down. Third, Satan has been silenced. 10 and 11, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser, there it is, of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. He can no longer accuse, not in heaven, not before God. He could stand before God and look at you and look at me. This one claims to belong to you. Look at their filth. But he cannot do that anymore because of the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, took our sin upon himself. And he paid for it in full. So that as you put your faith in him, he gives you his righteousness. Satan's been silenced as the accuser of the brothers. 
Where does he accuse you now? He can't do it in heaven, but he will try his best to accuse you in your conscience. Those sins that have been forgiven, that you've confessed, but that trouble your conscience, would give you regrets, wish you could do over the sorrows, the impact of sin. And Satan comes and he wants to crush you and he wants to stomp you down. But it's false guilt because you've been cleansed in Christ. And you stand to him with the promise of scripture that Christ has paid for all of your sins. He's not allowed to accuse you before God in your conscience either. Satan's been silenced. And Satan has been exposed, verse 9. The deceiver of the whole world, he can't deceive anymore. Verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. It's referring very clearly back to Genesis chapter 3 when he came to deceive Adam and Eve. When all the human race fell into Satan's power. But now he can no longer deceive the nations. He still has unbelievers under his control. They think everything's well. They can live their lives as they wish and they're going to stand before God and it'll be fine. Not knowing that they are perishing outside of Jesus Christ. But he cannot lead the believer in Christ in any deception ever again. You have conquered, verse 11, past tense. It's complete in Christ. Satan has lost the battle. He's been hurled down. He's been silenced. He's been exposed. So what's he going to do? Until that last day when he is cast into hell, he has one mission And that is if he can still destroy the church of Christ. Verses 12 and 17. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows that his time is short. Verse 17. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He wasn't able to destroy the boy baby, the Messiah, so he's going to go after the baby's mother, the church. Until he's thrown into the lake of fire, he's going to be trying to destroy the church. As Michael Horton put it, this is the status report from the battlefield. Satan is bound under house arrest, and yet, like a mafia boss in prison, he still manages to cause trouble. Satan has been cast out of heaven, but vigorously pursues retaliation against the church that has been liberated from his fortress. Dr. Rayburn describes the last days of Hitler in World War II. Quote, out of the bitterly tragic aspects of the Second World War, one of the bitterly tragic aspects of the Second World War was that even in its final throes, even long after it was perfectly obvious to thoughtful men that Hitler's armies had been defeated, 
His security forces and secret police continued in a kind of rage and bizarre detachment from reality to wage war on friend and foe alike. The gas chambers and ovens were full in the concentration camps. A political prisoner, such as the pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was taken from presiding over his last worship service in prison and hanged just a few days before he would have been liberated by the advancing armies of the Allies. Hitler demanded that Germany herself be destroyed rather than fall into the hands of the enemy. From his bunker, issuing orders to armies that no longer existed, he demanded vengeance on his internal opposition, retribution against subordinates who had failed to carry out his orders, and to the very end dreamed of some crisis among the Allies that would permit him at the last minute to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. He was beaten. And at a certain level, he certainly knew that. But thrown into fits of rage at his defeat, he sought to bring as many others down with him as he could. That's what John's describing here in Revelation 12 of Satan. He knows his end. He knows Christ has already won the battle. But his rage is he must bring down as many as he can. He must go after the church of Jesus Christ. Are we afraid? We are not to be afraid. What does the scripture tell us here about the church and Satan coming after her? Well, we notice, first of all, it's, it's the one church. It's the same woman before and after the birth of Christ. Did you notice that? Here's another picture. It's the Old Testament church and the New Testament church are the same church. It's the same woman. She's representing all believers who've put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ from the time of Adam and Eve on through the line of Abraham and Isaac to the New Testament. One group of believers, the people of Abraham, one Israel, one church, Old Testament, New Testament, one tent, one bride, one covenant of grace, one olive tree, one elect race, one holy nation, one royal priesthood, one new Jerusalem with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the names of the 12 apostles. God's same care of his one church, the Old Testament, New Testament. That's who's been shown here in Revelation 12. It's more than just the one church. It's a protected church. Safe in the wilderness. Verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she's to be nourished for a thousand 260 days. Verses 13 and 14, when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the, to the place where she's to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Even when he tries to send out a flood, verse 13, God's people are not going to be swept away. Why? They've been given the wings of the eagles to carry them. Referring to Exodus 19, he will bear you up on eagles' wings. He will hold you in the palm of his hand. He will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. A beautiful poetic way of God will care for his people, even though Satan's fury is against them. What's this about a wilderness? Well, that was the place of protection. 
Remember Elijah in the wilderness was where he was protected from Jezebel. It's where the, the ravens came and fed him. Wilderness is where God brought his people 40 years. And in those 40 years, he provided for all of their needs and daily bread. And their shoes didn't even wear out. Wilderness becomes this imagery in the book of Hebrews that we're wandering now in the wilderness until we get home. But it's the place where God will protect his people, even from the fury of Satan. The protected church, the safe church. She's safe for the whole time. You see the reference here to the three and a half years which is the same as 1,260 days, which is the same as 42 months, verse 14, which is the same as time, times, and half a time. Why the symbol? Well, it's not a literal symbol any more than anything else in this chapter. It's a literal symbol. Satan's not a red dragon with all these heads and diadems. But it's a very specific period of time. Why? Well, it's referring back to Daniel 9.27, These three and a half years picture a time that begins with the ascension of Jesus Christ and it will end with the return of Jesus Christ. And this period of time is the last period of history when Satan will have his last attempts to destroy the promises of God. But it's given as a very specific period of time because it's measured. And the time, the clock is is counting and another year is just turned over. This is not going to go on forever. It's a very specific period from God's point of view. And Christ will return in glory. Satan is coming after the church, but we need need not fear because it's one church. It's a protected church. It's a safe church. And it's, it's a conquering church. You see it in verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What's going to keep you safe in this whole period? The blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses you from all sin, and the word of God, the commandments of Jesus. You hold on to these. And God will preserve his people. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. We don't go around with exorcisms. We don't find and name and claim, cast out demons. But in humble prayer, we do resist him. And we hold on to the scriptures. And James 4 says he must flee from you. Revelation 12, God is pulling aside the curtain and he's showing us all the persecution of the church. Why at times your temptations seem so strong. Where is this coming from? Remember you're in a battle. There is someone who hates you. There's someone who hates the church of Jesus Christ. Believers can fall into one of two errors, either side of the tightrope. Satan doesn't matter which one you fall on. You can either fall into the first danger of not taking Satan seriously enough. He's a joke. 
He's a myth. So you're naive and you're not prepared for spiritual battle. You're ignoring the means of grace. You're a fool. We are not to be weary. We're not to be discouraged. We're not to be cowardly. But you are to settle down and watch and fight the good fight because this is going to be a long haul. Don't be naive. Or you can fall the other side. You become more Satan conscious than you are God conscious. You're not dealing with two equal co-powers. Satan has been defeated. And you're in Christ. The Lamb has cast down the enemy. Revelation is reminding you of the fury of Satan, but he's also reminding you of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Christ is the ruler yet. And so we enter the fight, we enter the good fight, but we remember you're not called to kill the dragon. He's been hurled down. Christ has done that. And his victory is already yours. You take that by faith. You're not the dragon slayer. Jesus is. But you continue to submit to the Lord. You continue to resist the devil. And he will flee from you. There's no reason to be in despair. There's no reason to be fearful of him and his attacks. There's no reason to be discouraged. You confess your sins. You get back in the good battle by the strength of the Lord, because the battle's already won. In fact, the end, Satan's end, was already recorded not only in Genesis 3.15. Book of Revelation closes with it. It's so certain. It's already been recorded, Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night Forever. It's already written down. On Christmas Day, December 25th, 1864, the Civil War was still going. It would be many more months before Lee's surrender, April 9, 1865. And on that Christmas Day, the despair of the war, wondering if it, if it would ever end, how it would end, seeing the thousands that had died, How would we ever survive as a nation? Henry Longfellow wrote his poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There's no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong, Mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's what Revelation is telling us. It's because of the birth, the death, resurrection. Ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The baby is the victor. And the only question is, are you on his side? Have you given your heart to him? Do you follow him as your Savior and Lord? Shall we pray?
Our Father, we thank you that you know each heart. You know the needs of each one. You know where we are today and how you would apply your word to each one of us. For all of us, we pray that we would be in Christ, that we would be those on the side of the victor and not in the world that is perishing, not deceived with the world. And our Father, we thank you for Christ, that he is coming back. Those days are limited and marked. And the Father, you know when Christ will come. May he come quickly. Encourage our hearts in the battle, not in our strength, but in the strength of Christ. May we rest in him today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.